1: As a listener to the Gravity Podcast, this is Matt Tevye, <laughs> uh, joined by the always joyful and effervescent Christy Penley. Hey, hey. Hello. And Ben Strunke. Hey there. Can you guys hear me now?
2: Is this we can hear you. We can hear yeah. you and see you. That's
1: fantastic. Ben, your voice, your voice matters to us. Uh, yeah, your internet, you. though, you. doesn't seem to believe yeah, that just, or cooperate this, with that.
3: This is, uh, this is 2.0 on our attempt to record this intro. Uh, anyway, I got to sort yeah. out my
1: internet issues in my new house. Well, your internet's working fine. Let's not waste it. Let's go, go, go! Uh, it's election day, which is a a big deal now in our country. I think it's always been yes. a big deal. Um, yeah. I don't know if you guys have voted. I voted early, so we Me we're too. recording this I, before election day, and I record. I voted already. Did you all vote? Yes. I have
3: not voted. Uh, I did not vote early. I'm planning to vote on election day. We're recording this the day before election day, so yeah, today, listener, I'm going to vote.
1: Yeah, I think uh, there's a lot of important elections happening locally, school boards and whatnot. Yeah, for
2: for us, it's a big deal—a school board thing. So yeah. I don't know what is big in your area, but
1: yeah. Well, I boards, I used to uh, I used to uh, kind of be surprised by election day, and now it doesn't surprise me. It's sort of circled on my. Uh, my calendar, and I actually have a, a prayer for election day coming out on my Substack tomorrow. So,
2: oh.
1: everybody, I'll be put praying it on
2: here. Are you going to save it just for Substack? Oh yeah,
1: I'm just saving it just for my okay. free subscribers on Substack. <laughs> um,
2: yeah, well, hey, you know what I was like. Wait, can I share something real yeah, fast? Sure. I was like pleasantly surprised because we have like this big vote for our school board, and I was talking to someone who's running, and she was like so positive about all the people running. Like, typically when you're running against other mm. people, they just slam people and say mean things and, you know, character assassination and all these terrible tactics to, like, win an election. Mm-hmm. Right. And it seems as though, like, she, she was telling me, like, all of the people who are running for school board, like, really care about our school and really care about our city. And, like, she was so positive and kind that mm. I was like, gosh, I wish, like, everybody that was, like, had their name yeah. on a ballot was that way with yeah. all of their people they're running against, anyway, I was pleasantly surprised
1: yes, it's nice you you know what uh, sociologists and uh, political scientists and all those people that study elections, you know what they've discovered is that uh being kind doesn't get as many votes as being I know yeah. awful
2: it's, it's so dumb, yeah yeah,
1: well, we are creatures driven by our amygdala, and so yes. fear, mm. fear, and anger. Yep. yes that's uh motivate us uh you know get get sort of p- people of privilege who don't feel like they need to vote kindness is hard, is a is not as persuasive a motivator as anxiety mm-hmm. or yeah, anger yeah you know um anyway well hope hopefully uh listener you're able to vote today and enjoy your privilege of a uh, living in a democratic republic and you get to do that um Speaking of privileges, we are talking to Karen Keene today, who Mm -hmm. is uh, awesome. Uh, I've I've read a number of her books, uh, and we're continuing our series on the Bible. She's written a book about how to understand the inspiration of Scripture. It's called The Word of a Humble God, The Origins, Inspiration, and Interpretation of Scripture. Uh, And this was... uh, Chrissy, you weren't here. No. But that's because you're doing important things.
2: Well, trying to, at least. You are.
1: (laughs) Uh, But Ben, what do you remember about this episode? Anything?
2: Um,
3: yeah, yes, I do. Um, mm-hmm. Pro- I mean, sometimes, <laughs> yeah, sometimes we record these months before they release, and so sometimes, yeah. you know, sometimes it is uh, like, oh, God, what would we talk about? No, I, um, I really love this interview. I remember her like um, the subtitle of this book is "How the Origins of the Bible." It's the something like this. I actually don't have it in front of me, but how the origins of the Bible, like where do we get the Bible? Mm-hmm. How actually looking at that and not just the Bible itself, how looking at how we got the Bible reveals something about the character of God. And I yes. really love that sort of, that way of analyzing that, that we can see that God is a humble God by the, not just from the words of scripture, but from the way that we got scripture, yes. the way that God works through human beings to give us um, God's word. Um, I just found that to be um, delightful, actually, to yeah. think about. What kind of a god what kind of a god communicates like this? Well, it must be a humble God. Yeah. So really loved really love this interview. Yes. Well, we should get right to it straight away. Let's do straight it. Straight away. Just so our internet doesn't stop working. You're your <laughs> in. If if for no other reason.
1: Yeah. Sorry. Your internet. All right. All right. Yeah. Here's Karen. Here we go. Karen Keen joins us today on the Gravity Podcast. She's a biblical scholar, author, and spiritual care provider who has taught biblical and theological studies in both academic and church settings. Currently, she teaches classes and leads retreats through the Redwood Center for Spiritual Care and Education. You can find her online at karenkeen.com and redwoodspiritualcare.com, and she's the author of a new book that we're talking about today, The Word of a Humble God. The Origins, Inspiration, and Interpretation of Scripture. Karen, welcome to the podcast.
4: Thank you. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: Yes, it's great to have you. Um, We're doing a series on the Bible. What is it? How do we read it? Especially for those of us who had uh, categories or notions of what the Bible is, and either we've lost faith in those, or they stopped working, or we're just curious about how other Christians approach the Scriptures. So, Maybe to start us off, Karen, what what drew you to write this book? Uh, Maybe what about your academic and spiritual care ministries uh, made this book necessary or compelling for you to write?
4: Thank you. Um, The short answer is I have a deep love for Scripture, and I'm hoping to inspire a deep love of Scripture uh, in general. But there's a story behind how I even got to writing this book, and one of those reasons is the intersection of my Baptist tradition and uh, going on to study historical criticism. And Mm -hmm. so I come from a conservative Baptist evangelical background where in seminary, at my Baptist seminary, I was trained pretty well in a close reading of the text, being very immersed in the text, which has a long tradition in Christian history of how to read scripture. We, We pay attention to a close reading. But I knew that I wasn't getting some of the full scoop, and so I actually went on for more study to learn more about mainstream methodologies and scholarship, including historical criticism. And like a lot of people who come from an evangelical background, it was very disorienting. So historical criticism is looking at the world behind the text Mm -hmm. and not just the world in the text. So I had been immersed in this world in the text, the narrative, the salvation story and then I go on and I study, you know, the historical background, like archaeology, and sometimes those were in conflict. The the What I was learning about the historical background and the history portrayed in the Bible were not always fitting together. And I sort of had this simplistic notion of how the Bible came to us. It was just, I, I had kind of a, you know, God dropped the Bible from heaven, <laughs> View. And you know, I envisioned Jeremiah sitting down at his desk and writing the whole book of Jeremiah and you know sending it to his publisher. and uh, so when i when I started to study more of the background and realizing, oh my goodness, there's all this complexity to how the Bible comes to us. How do I make sense of that with regards to inspiration? How do I make sense of that with regards to interpretation? Because I'm seeing two things that are true that don't seem compatible at first. I'm seeing this truth of scripture, this salvation narrative in the world of the text, but I'm also seeing the truth from the world behind the text, the archaeology, different discoveries of the historical background. How do I take these two truths And embrace both of them, and yet how do I fit them together? And the academy at large has struggled with this. This bifurcation between historical criticism and theology is very common even to this day in academic circles. And um, so a lot of times people from an evangelical background become disillusioned when they encounter historical criticism uh, and they don't know what to do with that. And some people will end up losing their faith. And they'll say, well, this is just a human document. There's too many human aspects to its creation. So we can't take it seriously. Um, and it challenged my own faith. I went through my own process of deconstruction and trying to figure things out. I came out the other side. Paul Ricoeur, the, the philosopher, would call that the second naivete. You know, mm-hmm. the, the, the first faith. The simple, uh, naive faith. But then, when you go through hermeneutics and these complexities, and you wrestle with that, and you come out the other side and still have your faith, you have a sort of second naivete that's not the same as the first. It's a it's a type of faith that has been through this process and has incorporated this knowledge and truth into. This faith, and and ultimately, even though it shook my faith originally, it ended up deepening my faith ultimately. And I actually think the complexities of the Bible, including the world behind the text, is super exciting and adds to the richness of how we think about the Bible. So, the book comes out of my own journey through that of making sense of what in the world is this? What is the nature and function of the Bible? And it also comes out of realizing that the Bible has been misused um, and abused over the over the centuries, and what contributes to that. Uh, how do we interpret Scripture so that it's life giving um, and is not used in the, in an abusive way? So I would say those two things are, are what compelled me to write this book. And my hope, ultimately, is that when someone reads this and sets it down, they'll be like, wow, God is amazing, and th- the Bible is incredible, and the way that it came together only uh, inspires me more to love Scripture.
1: Hmm. That's beautiful, Karen. I, I want to maybe then press into this, uh, coming out of your story, <clears throat> maybe your upbringing in the conservative Baptists, like, the the Bible dropped out of heaven, then encountering higher criticism. You have this, I think, intriguing or provocative statement in your introduction. You say liberalism, which is the higher criticism, Mm -hmm. and conservative, which is more of like how you were brought up. These two apologetics are two sides of the same coin, Mm -hmm. each looking for provable absolutes in the visible world to make its case. Can you name for us succinctly how your proposal, your project here, is something different than maybe that spectrum or or uh, conceptual world of higher criticism versus falling out of heaven?
4: Yeah. So um, my hope is to bring together history and theology and get away from that bifurcation. And just as a clarification for those who might be listening, when we hear the word liberalism, we might think of progressive Christianity or social socially progressive politics and that's not what this is that's not what that word means when we're talking about biblical studies. That word in biblical studies refers to a movement of rationalism and scientific inquiry that's the result of the post-Enlightenment era. the the age of reason where uh, science is is this exciting time of the development of science and we're discovering true things through science and so now let's just use science to explain everything and what happened as a result of that was uh, some people took a scientific approach to the bible and and tried to dissect it like a, a mathematical equation and said oh well there are differences between Genesis one and two. And so this is not mathematically precise. And so this must be an error. This is just a human book. And so it's not inspired. And so let's just study it as a human document like we would Shakespeare. And then on the flip side, then you have devout believers uh, who are saying, wait a minute, I still think that the Bible is inspired and I'm gonna use this scientific inquiry to prove that the Bible is true. And so, yes, there are differences between Genesis 1 and 2 creation narrative, but these are actually uh, traditions that have been brought together, different tradition, and intentionally done that way. And so, what happened was the use of scientific method, uh, you, you have some that are using it to, to try to disprove the Bible as inspired, and then you have the other side trying to use scientific inquiry to prove that the Bible is is truthful and um, and uh, and so uh, what happens is, is that the art of Scripture gets lost the the way that scripture has been understood and interpreted over time gets lost and it ignores the reality that spiritual truth, cannot necessarily be proven in that scientific method. So, Mm -hmm. Scott McKnight uh, wrote something that has always stuck with me, and that was, you know, we might be able to prove historically that Jesus lived and died, but we're never going to be able to prove that Jesus died for our sins. We can't Mm -hmm. prove that we are justified by faith. How do you how do you scientifically measure right. that we've been justified by faith? I mean, that's not something that can be proven or disproven. So, in that sense, liberalism and the conservative apolog- apologetic is is not going to uh, arrive at what ultimately the Bible points to, which is uh, faith. Is it's, hmm. yeah. it's uh, so. I would say where mine differs is that I'm not doing historical criticism in order to prove the truthfulness of the Bible. Rather, I'm looking at that evidence and saying there's something true about what we're seeing and the complexity of the way the Bible comes together. But then how do we understand that through the lens of faith? Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, a, a, an excellent book is by Murray Ray called "History and Hermeneutics," and he tries to say, "Look, this bifurcation between history and theology is a problem because history is theological." That. Uh, that God is active in history, right. and so we can bring those two things together, not that okay. God is a puppet master orchestrating every little thing, but that God is involved with humanity and so my my question was, if we do a historical critical study of the material origins of the Bible, it's reasonable to ask what might God have been doing? in uh this allowing this process to take place you know at this time in this way versus a post enlightenment post printing press uh era where we could have our pristine clean manuscript right that we're so used to now and um so So that's kind of where I'm coming from. I guess I would say I'm not trying to prove the uh, or disprove the veracity of the Bible. Rather, I'm looking at the evidence Mm -hmm. and exploring and contemplating how God might have been involved in that process. And what does it tell us about the character of God and maybe what God is teaching us through the manner in which the Bible was formed?
3: And now, a word from a sponsor.
2: The Gravity Podcast is sponsored by the Gravity Formation Course, a 12 month cohort based training in practical spiritual formation, where you'll learn to notice how God is already at work in your life so you can participate more fully in the life God shares with us. It's a discipleship process that goes beyond just gaining more knowledge and trying new practices. In the Gravity Formation Course, We go below the surface of our lives so that we can notice and name our deepest desires in God's presence, and to discern how God is at work in those desires to lead us towards holistic flourishing, more transformation, more life, more joy, more love. We've trained hundreds of people all over the world in this Formation Framework, and it has helped many people to have a sense of God at work in their lives, to learn how to be more at home in God's love. If you'd like to learn more, go to gravitycommons.com slash formation.
3: All right, let's get back into our conversation. So uh, let me see if I'm understanding what you're saying, and then I have a question for you um, about that. Um, It's maybe another way of saying this is that the mistake that sort of the traditional Conservative and liberal uh, apologetics make is assuming that the science that scientific inquiry is the only way to really know something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And that that's the mistake they make is thinking that thinking that whatever they're trying to show has to pass through this lens of scientific inquiry. When ac- in actuality, that's just one way of knowing things. It's one way right. of knowing something right. um, that deals with the natural world. It's very good at what it does but you can't apply it to to the entirety of life and expect to gain knowledge.
4: Exactly. Exactly. And I think another way to put it would be science and art are both incredibly valuable and science and art both speak truth. And, um, you know, the scripture in many respects is similar to the way art conveys truth. Mm -hmm. So we wouldn't want to say, well, because it doesn't meet this mathematical formula Poems don't convey truth yeah, you know that's sort of a ridiculous statement right. of course they both can convey truth
3: yeah so then maybe you can expand on that um another quote from your book is that there goes my dog um i don't know if you guys can hear my dog but somebody just pulled into the driveway and so she's very excited it's my daughter she's home from work um So I'll ask this question quick, just in case the dog starts barking again. Um, Another quote from the intro is, is is this, the particularities of the Bible's production reveal aspects of God's character and purpose for humanity. And so this is what you alluded to earlier, where you are trying to show, this is kind of the crux of your book, you're trying to show that the way the Bible was made, which is not, it didn't drop out of heaven, right? It wasn't like, you know, uh, God whispering in people's ears and then writing down the words. Um, the way the Bible was made actually reveals something to us about who God is. I'm wondering yes. if you can maybe give us a couple examples of what you have in mind here.
4: Yeah, that, I mean, that's sort of the thesis that I make for the book. And then I set out in the book to try to to demonstrate that thesis. So I'm looking at the historical particularities in the first part of the book And then in the subsequent uh, two parts of the book, I'm looking at, you know, how to just show something of God and and this making of it. And so one example would be, um, you know, I was struck by, first of all, I point out four traits that I I, I noticed in the evidence of the historical particularity. One, it's contextual. It was made in a particular context by a particular people it's communal it wasn't one person writing it it was multiple people writing it and um dynamism written over a period of time and um, there's a varied nature of it we see different manuscript traditions and different ways of doing uh you know the w- different ways that the canon formed together uh, such that we have more than one biblical canon in global christianity today so, I, I I was struck as I was noticing these things. Wow, there's just a there seems to me to be a real humility of God in this, a humility of God to to come to where we are in our context, to our social location, and work with us where we are. There's something humbling about. Uh, God choosing to collaborate with human beings in this communal process of creating scripture. Not only God collaborating with us, but teaching us to collaborate with one another as people work together and across time. And a humility of God in uh, the, the perseverance of God over time in history and being present with humanity despite all of its uh, you know, shortcomings. Um, and so, I mean, that's just a, a few examples where it seemed to me that this whole project was de- exemplifying something about God's character that we could learn from and seek to apply in our own Christian life and practice. Yeah, it's good. I can go into that more too, as we talk about the divine humility view and kind of my own view of inspiration, but that's sort of a nutshell overview.
2: No, I like that. That's good. And we will get into, to that in just a second, but before we do the first part of your book, uh, you really, um, work through the making of the Bible. You know, many Christians would just say, well, God, God wrote it. And, and that's enough for me. Right. Um, so why, you spend several chapters right on this. So tell us what is spiritually and theologically
4: significant for us in how the Bible was made? Yeah, great question. So I think the God wrote the Bible, which is certainly a sentence that would have described the way my tradition approached the Bible. It's simply not accurate. It's not a truthful statement. That's not to say that the Bible is not inspired, but what is implied by that statement is that God alone wrote the Bible, and it and it conveys this idea that the Bible was dropped from heaven, which mm-hmm. is not even what Christian tradition has held through much of history, and it's not accurate. It, co- it conveys this idea that the Bible is the result of mechanical dictation, that God just sort of Possessed this human body, and uh, you know the the human being was just sort of not involved at all. Mm-hmm. And in reality, it would be more accurate to say God and human beings wrote the Bible together. And so, uh, the theological and spiritual significance is that the Bible. And its formation conveys something of the relationality of God in relationship with human beings. That God wants to be in relationship with human beings. Scripture in its content even conveys this relationality. I mean, you think of the Psalms, where the psalmist is conversing with with God and talking with God, and the prophets are are conveying God speaking back. So there's this whole relational uh, uh, dynamic, this whole dialogic dynamic in the creation of the Bible itself and even evident in um, the content of scripture, which is so much richer than this idea of, of the Bible falling from heaven or God just sort of possessing a human being without any regard for the human being. Um once we really understand how the Bible co- comes together, that notion, that sentence "God wrote the Bible becomes sort of vapid and uh, superficial to this wonderful dynamic of God and human beings working together on this project of scripture. Yes. <clears throat> One
1: part of the um, architecture that I grew, I kind of came to faith in, <clears throat> is that the authority of the scriptures is tied to something called inerrancy, which means that they are free from flaws or errors. And as higher criticism sort of chimed in in the last 200 years, um, that that kind of got amended to uh, inerrant in the original autographs, um, meaning... The first time scripture was written down, that was what was without error. But as you talk about uh, how the Old Testament came to be, what we call the Old Testament, um, to me, there's a, a massive disconnect here. Like, it doesn't feel like it works. Can you, is that suspicion correct? And if so, could you unpack that for us? Like, How, how does that way of framing biblical authority fall apart with the Old, Test- the Old Testament? that we have.
4: Yeah, um, I will say that I don't care for the word error or inerrancy. I, I would push back on Karl Barth and his use of the word error, and I would push back on Al Mohler and his use of the word inerrancy. I don't think that those are helpful terms, uh, and I would rather use biblical language, and I think Biblical language would be truthful. Do I think that the Bible is truthful or not? And interestingly, even Al Mohler acknowledges that the word true or truthful is, you know, really what is at stake in the whole conversation of error or inerrancy. And the reason why the term inerrancy was even developed is people were uh, having different opinions of what true meant. And so inerrantists are like, well, what we mean by true is that the Bible is scientifically accurate, for example, and you know, the the you know, maybe creation was actually did occur in a literal six days, things like that, although not all inerrantists will hold to a young earth creationism that that was a, a kind of a big piece of it. Um, and so I, and, you know, you inerrantist today will say, you know, I do have to explain what I mean by inerrancy. And my suggestion would be, if we have to explain our terms, why don't we use a more helpful term like true and truthfulness, go back yes. to that and talk about what do we mean when we say that the Bible is true or truthful? Mm-hmm. What do we mean when we say that the Bible has authority and um the whole notion that the Bible can only be true if it's read in the scientific kind of way is a a totally false presupposition, a a very damaging, I would say, presupposition. And so um, I would get away from that and come back to truthfulness. And um, what we see in the making of the Bible is it does not fit into this box uh, that often undergirds the inerrancy movement in the sense of scientific, using the Bible essentially like a science book, because that's not the nature and function of the Bible. That's not why it was written. It wasn't written to be a science textbook. It's written to tell the the salvation story of God working with humanity. So... It's funny, Karen,
2: because uh, not too long ago, um, a, a, an organization wanted me to come and, and speak for them, and, um, and they were kind of vetting me before they were actually handing me the contract, right? And one of their questions was, what do I believe about Scripture? And so I used words just like you just said. I said, I believe scripture has authority. I believe scripture is true. And they were like, it feels like you're, you know, like going around the bush. Like, we need you to be clearer. And I'm like, that is clear. That's very clear. Right, That's what right. I mean, you know? Yeah. And they did not like that answer. So. Yeah. <laughs> they were looking yeah. for code words. Yes, yep. they were. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So. yeah. I, I wonder, Karen, you mentioned earlier your... The way you want to frame inspiration as um, as divine humility mm. um and it's in it's in the title of your book, the Word of a humble god mm. so could could you do two things for us? One, give us a very cursory understanding of what you mean by divine humility, and then why humility is the characteristic that you're sort of anchoring this understanding of inspiration in
4: right, yeah, great question. Um, I will say first off that I wasn't looking for humility when I started this project. I did not go into it with the presupposition of this is what I think God is or the Bible is. It was only when I was about halfway through the manuscript that that started to occur to me as I was um, reading it. And so um, my divine humility uh, suggestion is trying to make sense of that evidence. And I would ground that in creation. So it, what I'm saying is not that, um, it's not too different than the historic position of accommodation. You know, the idea that God, the reason why there are human traits in scripture is because God accommodated to human beings and speaks in their language. And I think Peter N's book does a pretty good job and, and Uh, you know, inspiration and incarnation of talking about that kind of accommodation, using a Christological uh, analogy to describe that, you know, Jesus, God humbling God's self in in human flesh is is kind of like what the Bible is, God engaging with our socio-historical context and what I would differ is that I'm rooting mine not so much in Christology, but in uh, God's creation um, of humanity, which is the Imago Dei. So God creates human being in order to govern and to uh, steward the earth. It's given God has given humanity power and responsibility, and what kind of God gives humanity Mm -hmm. power, what kind of God shares power at all. And we see that uh, all through to the New Testament, where it's kind of mind-blowing, but this idea that we are seated in the heavenlies, seated on this throne in the heavenlies, and Jesus saying, you know, to whoever conquers, I will will share my throne with me as I share my father's throne. And it's mm-hmm. like, what? Mm-hmm. God sharing a throne with little human beings, mm-hmm. and what is so amazing? I mean, it's, it's it's an amazing humility that I wish that we would imitate more because we're you know we're we're here bickering and and trying to argue about who get to be in charge and who get to have control. And meanwhile, God is sharing power, an extraordinary, the almighty God is sharing power and em- empowering us, which gets to a definition of humility that had been understood even by church fathers. So I think the word mm-hmm. humility now is often interpreted as self-deprecation, as as being a doormat, you know, if you're Humbled, you'll be. You'll you'll be self-sacrificial and just allow people to walk on you, and that is that's humiliation. That's not humility. Humility is the way that one uses one's power, it's not the lack of power. It's not God giving up authority or power. It's not us giving up our God-given created agency, which mm-hmm. is what the Imago Dei is about that we have been given agency. It's not abandoning our agency. It's how we are using that power and specifically using that power to raise up and to lift up. I think too often the word humility is often used as a synonym for just being nice to people. Right. But right. if we start looking at interpretation and actually applying this, You know, a slaveholder could say, Well, I'm going to be nice to my slaves. I'm going to treat them better. Whereas the humility of God is saying, Oh, it's much more than that. It's how are you using power? What are the power dynamics here? It's just fascinating. I'm kind of getting off into the interpretation part (laughs) of things. But in apartheid, you have theologians who are like, We believe in justice. And 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 we want well being for all people, and we think this segregation is the way to that. And it's like, right. oh, you know, what? Yeah. How did you get to this place that you think that that is going to arrive at justice? The sincerity, the sincerity of belief that we can have that we are doing the will of God, mm-hmm. and have it com- be completely undergirded by. Uh, something that we 're blind to, and in a case of apartheid a, a history of racism that has created a theology right. um anyway i 'm starting to get off on a bunny trail now, but
3: <laughs> that 's all right that's uh, this podcast uh specializes in bunny trails, yeah <laughs> um and bunny so, trails I, with Ben
1: that 's what we are going to rename it yeah
3: that's, yeah <laughs> we're thinking about rebranding um yeah, so again, like th- I, I just want to articulate what, what I think i 'm hearing you say. It's not just the story of Scripture that shows us God's humility. It's, it's actually the way that Scripture was created, the way that God worked through the authors, like the way that we even have the Bible demonstrates the humility of God. That yes. this, is, this is how God works in the world to save us. This is how God works in the world to redeem us. This is how God works in the world to give us the Scriptures that speak about God to us. Yeah. Like this is it all demonstrates the the divine humility uh, that you're speaking. Yes. Of. Yeah.
4: Yeah, and teaches us to do the same. You know, I mean Yes. What what you're something that's often been used to discredit scripture is the dynamism. Like we see all right. the different redactional, the editing layers and and um, you know, a purely historical critical look would say, "Oh, you know, All this change is happening, so it can't be reliable. Mm -hmm. There's something really profound and wonderful about that dynamism, though, that Scripture is created over time. Because Mm -hmm. what if we had a Bible that was written post-printing press, and there's one pristine document in one generation, and the way that one generation could lord that over the rest of the human family. That right. the fact that scripture is created over time shows God working across history, and the yeah. way that God is continuing to work across history, and it makes it so that we can't just box up the Bible and control it. The fact that it that it's written over a period of time makes it. Uh, I have to. I have to respect and appreciate that there are other generations involved in this this process, and it's not just about me and my superiority and what I have I have done. Yes. Yes. Um, and so, so I think that's beautiful. I don't think that that's a liability. I don't think that that's a problem to solve. I think that yeah. is that dynamism is yes. a wonderful way that God has persevered with humanity and the way it teaches us humility. Not to be myopic, which I think happens a lot nowadays with, I learned this particular way of interpreting in my particular church tradition, and this is the only way. And I have no awareness of the fact that Mm -hmm. I'm part of a cross-generational, cross-global movement in in which there's more than just my own myopic perspective and view. We'll be right back
5: let 's get back to the show
3: and it, it strikes me too that like believing that God can work through editing you know and and people making changes to text over time that just it it speaks uh, like it 's almost like the inerrantists or people who want to say that like it it was in the original autographs like so Paul sat down to write a letter, and that 's the thing that's inspired because we believe that paul heard God saying words or however that works, you know, it's almost like they've painted themselves into a corner Mm -hmm. where it's now they have to believe that God spoke to Paul in this very direct and literal way, rather than being open to, you know, just being open to, well, maybe God works like through more people than just Paul. Maybe God works through, you know, the editing of these texts and the reception of these texts and how they were read in churches and how they were copied and passed along to other churches. And, you know um, all of that whole prop and even the selection process, right? Like yes. what, like deciding what books we have in our Bible, that was all just done by the church, you mm-hmm. know, in general, like people mm-hmm. just deciding this seems to speak to the God that we know in the gospel yes, um, yes. and, and all of that kind of thing. So yeah, yeah that, this is, this is really great. Um, I wonder if we could get into maybe just a, a question about interpretation. Then you're, you know, the first part of your book is about how the Bible was made part two um, what, what it means to say that the scriptures are inspired. And then part three covers like how we access those inspired scriptures, which is interpretation. And you've alluded to this before about if we've got divine humility in the production of the scriptures, um, and the inspiration of the scriptures, then there's also divine humility in the interpretation, you know, of the scriptures. But I'm, I'm curious, as you wrote this book, what, you know, did you make any discoveries that helped you kind of like, you know, figure out how we interpret the scriptures? Were there any surprises or, um, discoveries that, um, that you made that you think might be helpful for our listeners to hear?
4: Yeah, I think something that I sort of had a notion of but didn't see as clearly was how striking it is that the church has been sustained by many different types of interpretive approaches, many different types of methodology. So in my tradition, the, there was an emphasis on one method of interpretation, and I think there's there's just sort of this compulsion that uh, even not people from different traditions have about well, we've got to find this one right methodology, and if we just find this one right methodology, that will ensure that we are interpreting it properly. It will ensure that the Bible is used to come uh, to Uh, the right doctrines and the right ethics. And the problem with that is that that's barking up the wrong tree. So a many different methodologies can arrive at a, a God, uh, a godly interpretation and what may, and it's been it's fascinating if you go in and you start looking at, these different methods of interpretation and the way that they were used. So allegorical interpretation, which is so often uh, viewed with disdain now, was incredibly crucial in the early church as an interpretive method because it helped the early church make sense of the Old Testament in light of Jesus and the, and, and the, the Old Testament and the New Testament holding those together, and it served a particular purpose for the church in retaining the Old Testament as sacred text. And so that particular methodology at that particular time was helpful in the purposes of God. And so um, any interpretive method can be abused. There is no one interpretation that's going to save from that, even literal interpretation, which, as a matter of fact, there are many different types of literal interpretation if you study history and the way people have understood that. And so, uh, you know, really literal interpretation, which is often understood to be, you know, the plain meaning and the accurate meaning, was a big piece in supporting slaveholder hermeneutic and, and uh, the, the defense Of slavery. That's one one example of how a literal sense had been abused. So no one methodology is going to protect against abuse. What we learn is that, as Jesus said, you search the scriptures and you don't see me because you don't have the love of God in you. So you search the scriptures, you study them, you come up with your right methodology or whatever, you can do all of that, if you don't have the love of God in you, you're not going to see me. Scripture point to me. And that is what, you know, Christian tradition throughout has always held that Jesus is the North Star, that Jesus is the interpretive uh, lens and, uh, you know, what we're going toward. And so Jesus is saying, these scriptures point to me, a person, an, an embodied real- reality and, and particularly, um, I would, you know, uh, it's, it's it's that evidence of God's humility and the, the character of God is evident in the Jewish scriptures. So, but what I would say about Jesus is that it is uh, not that this is something completely new, but that it is becoming even more illuminated in the sense of, the character of God and the embodiment of Jesus and what Jesus is showing us about God. You know, it, it, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you've seen me, then you are understanding the God of the Old Testament. And, and uh, you know, so, um, you know, there's a the sense in which disposition becomes crucial, not so much the methodology As much as the disposition, do I have the love of God in me? Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, And then the embodiment of that humble God. So the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus is this profound manifestation of God's humility. Mm -hmm. And so that humility of God, as we see in Jesus, being the interpretive North Star and then our embodiment of it, because interpretation is not just about propositions. A sound interpretation is what is embodied. Yes, it's what it's that humility embodied in community. So that you know Augustine could say, any interpretation that doesn't arrive at love of God and neighbor is not right. It's not the right interpretation. You need to go back right. and and look at that. So. This is
2: fascinating because right now um, at the church that I work at, we are in a little series called the Good Book, and we are we are actually trying to teach uh, interpretation, trying to teach how did the Bible come to be, um, like immediate context, historical context, and and helping our congregation be able to take Scripture and um, and read it and study it and give them tools to not just make up whatever they want, right? Yeah. But it's Complicated. Mm-hmm. It's very hard, and it, it needs. There needs to be dialogue. There needs to be, you know, lots of conversation. Um, I'm curious, Karen. What work do you hope this book does for the reader um, in their relationship to Scripture? Because, like, I look at your book, I'm like, I need to tell my congregation read this book because mm-hmm. this is, is going to be helpful for you.
4: What are you hoping um, this book does? I hope that it will be spiritually edifying. In the same way it was for me writing it, because when I was about halfway through and I began to see what kind of God lead to the creation of, of, the, of the Bible in this kind of way, and wow, what a humble God. And it, and it, it really literally provoked me to worship. It, it, it was like, oh my goodness, that's amazing God that we have. And so I hope that it will inspire that same kind of worship of, of this amazing, humble God, that it will inspire a fresh love of Scripture, particularly those who may feel disillusioned with the Bible. Is the Bible still worthwhile to read? Is it still trustworthy? Mm-hmm. I hope that it will inspire a sense of, oh my goodness, yes, these all these things that may be you know, Richard Dawkins said, was a liability, there's a way of understanding how Scripture came together, that is truly wondrous, mm. um, and and show a greater love of Scripture because I think that Scripture is truth, and I do think that Scripture is life-giving, and yes. so I want uh, a love of Scripture to be transformative in in people's lives."
1: Yeah. That. Yep. This is, Karen, this is the reason we're doing this series. So many of us were um, aligned pretty closely with your upbringing. And once we realize that the scriptures don't pass a scientific test, which they were never written to pass, it, we feel like we have to choose between gaslighting our conscious, our cognition, or um, leaving the faith. And there's so much room to grow and expand our understanding of how scripture is good and true and And the your project is reclaiming the ground that scripture is on itself rather than taking this term the scientific rationalistic enlightenment term and and squeezing scripture into it yeah. you you allow the scriptures to be what they claim to be and then and then give us um confidence that that is sufficient mm-hmm. and not only sufficient but that is actually what we need to have the saving faith that Jesus came to bring so Thank you so much for this book and for yeah. spending time with us today to to talk about it with us. I know our listeners are keenly interested no pun intended on, on, on having <laughs> sorry, I didn't mean to do that. Uh, keenly interested to 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 construct something that feels livable and faithful and I think your book yeah. does that.
4: Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> for having me.
1: Yeah, as we as we exit I wonder, you know, I mentioned your website at the beginning karenkeen.com. But could you tell us a little bit about Redwood Spiritual Care and Education, that that center, and and the work that you do there?
4: Yeah. So, in 2016, I founded the Redwood Center for Spiritual Education – excuse me, the Redwood Center for Spiritual Care and Education. And uh, I had been trained in spiritual direction as well as – academics, and I've always had this love for uh, bringing together ministry and the intellectual world of scholarship, and was not sure for the longest time how those came together, Um, but what it ultimately came together as is the Redwood Center, and so my passion is making scholarship accessible to a general audience, people who will never go to seminary, might never have gone to Bible college. And uh, you know, there's this wealth of scholarship that can be incredibly helpful to the church, but it's often not translated. So I sort of combine my academic background with my spiritual direction background to uh, bring scholarship to a lay audience or to pastors or even other scholars in a way that is spiritually edifying. Um, often those two things are not brought together sometimes, and so that's that's my goal, particularly as it relates to real life issues, you know, um, yeah. ethics, politics, sexuality, whatever that we're 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 um, that God is engaging with us in the real world, not just intellectual entertainment, but but how does this scholarship have real meaning? To, to our lives and the everyday.
1: Yeah. Amen. The book, again, is called The Word of a Humble God, The Origins, Inspiration, and Interpretation of Scripture. Karen, thank you so much for spending time with us today.
4: Thank you.
2: Okay, something I needed to double-click on with get it her, out. and I didn't. Let's,
1: let's get it out. Come on
2: is that I felt like she was saying you know kind of there's all these different ways to interpret scripture and that's okay mm-hmm. is that what you heard her say because because to me I'm like no 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 there, there are some ways of ter- interpreting scripture that are not okay and actually hurt people right. and and d- yes. do damage yes
3: yeah yeah so i I didn't hear her say that I think I'm glad you double clicked on this because maybe our listeners heard the same thing that you did. Um, and Mm -hmm. so I'm glad we can clarify because I, for her to say that there's not only one sort of correct interpretation of scripture, I don't think is also to say that anything goes, that you can just interpret however you want and all interpretations are valid. Mm -hmm. I don't think those things are, uh, those aren't corollaries with each other. Um, And so I I do think there is a way of holding her view, which is to say that God can speak to us through the scriptures using a variety of methods of interpretation. I think we can say that's true, but we can also say that there is such a thing as bad interpretation.
2: Yeah. I mean, I guess when she was talking, what was in my head was like, you know, in high school hearing Revelation 3 and you know, either be on like be hot or cold, but don't be lukewarm. And that was interpreted as be on fire for Jesus or or hate Jesus, but don't be in the middle, yeah. <laughs> which is like a bad interpretation. That's not what that is saying. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. I think I think this is why her um proposal of <sighs> understanding that God made the Bible in humility mm-hmm. and that we interpret it in humility yes. means that that maybe there's there is um because she talked about power remember she talked about how right. how God inhabits power it's this cruciform power this philippians two power so any interpretation that that doesn't comport or align with that power we should have questions about and that's what right. you're saying christy right. right yeah
6: yeah
3: and she even I mean she quoted um uh Augustine or Augustine I never know how to pronounce his name do you guys you, know yeah. you no, do you then All right. Augustine. Whatever you want. All right. There are multiple ways today. (laughs) Yeah. Multiple ways to interpret how to pronounce his name. It's good, Christy. That's a good callback. No, um, you know, but she she quoted him, who who basically said, Any interpretation that does not result in love of God and love of neighbor is bad by definition. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's like, Mm -hmm. that's bad. That's a bad interpretation because I I remember the thing that first got me thinking along these lines uh, that kind of got me out of my simplistic. you know, maybe overly simplistic uh, ideas about where the Bible came from. Like, I don't think I ever believed it fell out of heaven. But, you know, I sort of like functionally believed that it was somehow like magically produced, right? That it wasn't, that there wasn't this whole process. But I think the first thing that sort of uh, blew my mind when I started thinking about it is I was studying theological interpretation of scripture in um, grad school. And like just the realization that the gospel predated the new Testament. Hmm. The gospel predates the new Testament. Well, of course it does. Like the gospel is the, anun- the, anun- the, the the announcement of, you know, the, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Hmm. Well, we didn't have the new Testament for decades, you know, after, and it wasn't finalized you know, for hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. But what did we have before that? We had the gospel mm-hmm. and actually the gospel was used to figure out what the new Testament was like, which of these letters are scripture. And the church used the gospel. They used the creeds to basically say, "Oh yeah, this letter lines up with the gospel that we've received." Yeah. So anyway, that that sort of was the oh, that was the gateway for me to be like, "Oh wait a second, something's different happening."
1: Yeah, and she goes into all that in her book. We didn't have time to get into that, but she goes into how the Old Testament was collated, how the New Test the documents that that were on the border didn't make it. Why? Yeah. So it's it's a really helpful sort of history of that, but also just her heart for like she wants people to worship.
2: Yes, I'm supposed to be
1: able to love. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I mean, and
2: even w- seeing the way that the scripture was like came to be, and the invitation from God to humanity to be a part of that. Yeah, right. It's mm-hmm. just this beautiful That's, picture yeah. of mm-hmm. who He is and how He continues to be like that in mm-hmm. today uh, in our lives. Sorry, I cut you off, Matt. What were you going to say?
1: No, I just, I'm just. um I don't know. It makes so much sense to me now. I wish I had had this when I started to have questions about the old containers I had. Yeah. I wish I'd. I wish I'd had this kind of clarity. Um. But you know, I'm. I'm not gonna cry. I'm not gonna cry about it today. <laughs> I just can't okay. do that. You have it now, Matt. You yeah. have it now. I'm just gonna count this as. A, I, this is my win today. Talking to yeah. Karen, and yeah. uh, nothing's gonna ruin that.
3: Yeah, that's good. I'm glad. Glad mm-hmm. to hear it. Yeah, yeah. I, I just wanted to say, too, just uh, before we before we close, the feeling that I got that I hope uh, is conveyed to our listeners um, is that this, like her book and the way that she's teaching us to um, interpret the scriptures and, and read the Bible, I'm hopeful that it takes like reading the Bible and interpreting the Bible out of the realm of this anxious, like, feeling about, I got to get it right. Right. Like I've got to get this right. I, I feel like interpreting the Bible used to feel like that in the cultures that I came out of, like, you'd better get this right. Cause you know, heaven and hell are at stake, like life and death. Like you've got to get this interpretation right. And the feeling of it is so constricting and anxiety yep. inducing. Yeah. But I, what I hear in her is this freedom and and this way of interpreting the scriptures, which is actually makes more sense of the scriptures we have. Rather than trying to, you know, layer these concepts on top of it, like inerrancy, but it's it become interpretation that can become curious, playful, open. Mm-hmm. I don't.
1: I'm not trusting that I have to get it right. I'm trusting God to speak. By the way, mm-hmm. this is speak. the way Jewish interpreters have handled their scriptures for thousands yes. of years. Yeah. yeah, this is the way Jesus, right, handled the scriptures. Is yeah. the way you're describing. If, yes. we, if we have a doctrine of inspiration and interpretation that doesn't allow us to handle the scriptures the way Jesus did, we may be off track.
3: Right. What, what, like, what are we doing? Um, are we, we are going to talk with a Jewish rabbi as part of this series that I'm very, I'm very much looking forward to. About, <laughs> um, you know? Yeah. How, what we get wrong. Gehenna, about, yes, we are. <laughs> <laughs> what we get wrong about, what Christians get wrong about interpreting <laughs> the Hebrew scriptures, so, aka Old uh, Testament.
1: I think Gehenna's Greek, by the way, so that was a uh, yeah. That you that's... that was an ignorant and almost <laughs> offensive joke. Okay, yeah. so uh, one other thing I want to name <laughs> uh, Sheol, Yes, we are. There we go. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, Chrissy, did you uh, did did her heart for holding the academy and real world together in spiritual care? Did that mm-hmm. sound like anybody we know? <laughs> I feel like Wait, that's you... I feel like that's you and your husband.
2: Oh, I was going to say it sounds like Paul, but it I don't does. think it sounds like me. I think he's rubbed off on me. Uh, <laughs>
1: yeah, but, but he, I think it sounds like your husband. Yes. That's what he's that's yes, what he tries is. to do with all the stuff he works on and publishes, et cetera.
2: Yes, absolutely, absolutely. yeah. Um, it's good stuff. Yeah. And, and actually, it makes like as I mentioned this, but we're doing the good book series, like, uh, at my church, and I'm doing historical context. And it is one of the hardest sermons I've ever had to write. Hmm. partly because um, you only get one shot, not one shot, but you know what I'm saying? Like you, you got like 30 minutes and you're trying to like consolidate all this information. But then part of me is like, but there's like this this life too. Like it's not just head knowledge. It's not just like yeah. the academia that I need to like pour into you. It's yeah. also like, how are we approaching this? And how are we living this out? Because um, my heart behind it is, in the interpretation, um, then there's application, mm-hmm. Yeah. right? Right. Yeah. And so yeah. I want to live it out. I right. want to know what it means, but I, it's because I want to live it out. And yes. so I want that to get caught. And that's, that's hard to do in 30 minutes.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it is hard to do. Yes. Uh, you know what else is hard to do? It's hard to like catch up on things that are happening in our lives sometimes. Uh, but to I, share? I wanted to share with you yesterday. Somebody asked me to name uh, two containers of water. What? I was like, well, damn. <laughs> oh,
2: Matt, every time, every time. I'm like, wait, how does this, like, he's going to give We're gonna some catch announcement. Up. We're gonna, yeah.
3: Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay.
2: Yeah. Okay. Well, there we go. We've cussed in English and in I just named containers Hebrew. that hold water. Just I think it was <laughs> a container
3: <laughs> that held water. Water. It has a homonym that is a cuss word, but I don't think mm-hmm. that technically Matt cussed.
2: You didn't so. No, I'm saying, like, in this whole podcast, I think we've cussed. Oh, in well, we probably have. Languages. We have we've All
3: cussed right. in different languages. Yes. And we've not our goal, pronounced homonyms that. for cuss words.
1: All right. Well, uh, oh, man. That, that should be sufficient for everyone to be fully sanctified.
2: There we go. I think
1: so. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, no. listener, we'll see you next week or talk I, to you next week. Until next time. Yeah. Until have next day. time.
3: Yep. This is going to be a fun series. Here we go.
1: Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. If you're finding it helpful or enjoyable, we'd love it if you'd tell your friends about
3: it. Ratings and reviews online also help others find the podcast. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And you can join our Gravity community online for free at gravityleadership.com slash join.
2: You'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox, as well as our email most Fridays with curated links to articles we find interesting and helpful. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com slash join.
1: Our podcast is produced by Ben Sternke and Matt Tebbe. Aaron Sternke edits and mixes the show. You can check out his work at aaronsternke.com.
3: We'd love to hear from you. To record a question or comment for us, go to gravityleadership.com slash message and click the start recording button.
2: You can also email us at podcast at gravityleadership com. Catch you next time.
0: Say goodbye